Good morning. Uh, we are currently, uh, as we've mentioned a couple times, in Advent, right? The season of expectation and of waiting. And so our sermon series has kind of followed that same model and theme. Uh, and it's that we've kind of sketched out the past couple of weeks a couple ideas of waiting and, and learning to what it means to wait in expectation, both alongside the people of Israel for the coming Messiah. Uh, but also, uh, as we wait now as God's people for Jesus to return again. Um, so this morning, we're going to read uh, from Malachi. And Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. Uh, and there's 400 years of silence after Malachi to the first word of the New Testament uh, in Matthew. And so I guess the question before all of us this morning as we get into this passage is this. Where was God in those 400 years? What was it like for God's people to wait in silence for that long? And this morning we're going to walk through the passage and here's what we're going to be looking at. And as I read it to you guys, I want you guys just to hear some of these themes. Though we wait and though we often wait in longing and in silence, God is still at work. Christ is is still at work. Listen for those promises in this passage from Malachi. So if you have your bulletins, you can open it up. We're starting in Malachi 3, 16 to the end of the, of the book itself, 4, 6. It says this, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, and the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. And the day when I make up my treasured possessions, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping with like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Oreb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for these words. Thank you um, that you are at work. Thank you that though we long and we wait, um, God, that you haven't left us, that you are with us. And Christ, remind us that this morning, remind us of your coming, and you're coming again um, as we get into this passage, and it's your holy name we pray, amen. Um, Have any of you heard of the Marshmallow Challenge? The Marshmallow Challenge is this study in 1972 from uh, Stanford, it was a psychologist uh, who was studying delayed gratification. And what they did was they set up this study where they got a bunch of children, uh, typically around like three to six, and they put them in a room and they put a marshmallow in front of them. And they said, you can have this marshmallow, 
It's yours. But if you can wait 15 minutes without eating the marshmallow, you can have another one. And a couple years recently, someone found this study and um, they recreated it. And it's on YouTube. You can Google it. Uh, it's hilarious. You should see these children. They're sitting there and this marshmallow. I mean, think of like my um, wonderful daughter, Lila, seeing that she would just grab it and put it straight in her mouth. Um, but, you know, these children, three to six years old, are excruciatingly staring at this marshmallow. And they're like, they want to touch it. They want to have it so bad. I mean, one kid literally like puts his hand in his face, uh, his face in his hands. One kid is like touching it, smelling it, rubbing it on them. Uh, one kid is like pulling off like just like the edges of the marshmallow and eating it. I, I really think he's like, they're not going to know, right? As if the thing's not videoed, right? Um, and none of, I mean, just seeing on their face how excruciating the waiting is and knowing that something so good is right in front of them, but they can't have it is amazing. And I thought about that a lot this week um, as I was preparing to talk about waiting. Sometimes life can seem similar to this experiment, right? It seems like at our fingertips at all times we have good things that we can access that are right there in front of us. And yet it seems at the same time that we are almost forced to wait for good things as well right? Or even better things. I, I, I was thinking this week, there's like two opposing forces that seem to be at work in the world all the time. The, the kind of cultural force and then the way the world works. Both of these forces often uh, in our lives slam up against each other. The first force is that culture of immediacy, right? All of our needs today seem to be at our fingertips, if we want to watch a show, beam to our phone directly. If we want to order food, not get off our couch, sent to our house immediately. If we want to, uh, you know, have the next technology, we can use our current technology to buy it and then it get delivered directly to us. If we want to talk to someone in the other side of the world, we can do it immediately. If we want to go on a date, we can swipe without getting out of, out of our pajamas, right? Our lives are instant. They're quick. They're immediate. We wait and we long for little. But then again, the world also opposes this idea of immediacy as well, right? And it's like this equally strong force. We wait for test results to come back that we have no control over. We wait for a job offer or even a job to come up that we want to apply for. We wait for applications to be accepted and rejected we wait for those who we are in relationships with to finally come around, to change, to see our point of view. We wait for the pain emotionally or physically or spiritually to go away. We wait for our kids to grow up, our toddlers to get out of the bath, our college kids to finally start studying hard and living up to their potential. We wait for a friend, maybe just one, so that our loneliness can end. You see, these two forces, a culture that promises immediacy in a world that forces us to wait, this creates a deep anxiety in us. We think we should have everything immediately, and we can't. And we are becoming an impatient people. 
And yet, as Christians, waiting is part of our identity, and it always has been. One of the defining traits of God's people historically is to be long-suffering. Israel, who moved from place to place, a wandering tribe, enslaved countless times by warring opposing nations, were constantly in need of God to save them, to end their waiting. In the New Testament, the early church anxiously awaited for the Lord to return as their religion grew and grew and grew, and they had no idea how to handle it. Waiting is a part of our identity. Now, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. This doesn't mean that waiting in and of itself is a good thing. There's great pain and suffering in waiting. And though it's part of who we are, that doesn't mean that it's inherently a good thing. Or even a means to an end. And we can learn from waiting, that's part of who we are, right? Without it becoming an object lesson for us or for other people. No, pain, the pain of waiting is real. The suffering is real. So the question remains before us, like we started before we read the passage, where is God? Where is he? If he is all-powerful, if he hates sin, why do we wait? Why must we we be long-suffering, right? What is he doing while we're waiting on him? Where is he? And one of the reasons we chose this passage to preach during Advent is because it's the last word, right, of the Old Testament. This intertestamental period is called often the, the 400 years of silence. Um, and it's, it's almost spoken in of this like hushed tones, almost like this, this reverence, 400 years of silence. Where was he? Well, I, I think personally, holding up those 400 years as a giant mystery is a bit hyperbolic. Here's why. This, this is how God always works. There were thousands and thousands of years between uh, Cain and Abel and Abraham, right? God almost barely speaks at all during that time. Where was he? Jesus came 2,000 years ago, and we haven't had a word of revelation since. Where is he? To think these 400 years of silence between the old and the new is, is some kind of new thing misses out on the nature of who God is. He is constantly moving and speaking throughout history. He is the same restorative and gracious God that he's always been, even if he's not directly speaking to us. Those two things aren't at odds with one another. Christ is at work ceaselessly, whether he's speaking directly to us or not. He's always worked that way. So Malachi, the last of the minor prophets, the last book in the Old Testament, the last word before the word himself came and walked, the word became flesh reminds the people of God of the coming Messiah. Of the restoration that they will experience when he comes. The judgment that he brings. That even when their faith seemed dead and lifeless and stale, the Messiah would come and he would set all that is wrong right again. And his reminder is ours this morning. In our waiting and in our longing for all to be set right again in ourselves and in the world and that long-suffering that we feel. We long for Christ to be at work. And in this passage, it does remind us that he is. And so this morning, we're going to see three ways uh, that we must wait with that confidence of his work. The first is we must wait with the assurance of his claim. Second, we must wait with the hope of his restoration around us. And third, we must wait with the reminder of his faithfulness to us. So first, 
uh, the assurance of his claim on us. The idea behind this is simple. Unless we realize that we are Christ's and he is ours, the waiting we experience in life will always be or feel like it's in vain, that it's purposeless, that it's meaningless. But if we see it through the lens of Christ's claim and ownership over us, it'll change the way we wait. It changes how we experience the toils, the long-suffering of life. And this is what Malachi is doing. So for a bit of context, the people of Israel years before, during Haggai and Zechariah, they had had a late resurgence, right? We know that Israel went through times of really being faithful to God and really not. And um, in the minor prophets, it kind of gets worse and worse. But in Haggai and Zechariah, they have this great period of of faithfulness to God. And uh, they rebuilt the temple um, that had been destroyed, and things were going well. But in the 5th century of Malachi's time, it it had kind of petered off again, right? Uh, The life of Israel had grown stale and morally decadent. They were still waiting for the Messiah to come. The priests were exerting their power in these like unhealthy ways. The rituals had become rituals, a means to the end, rather than uh, a desire of the heart to know God. The temple life had lost its meaning. And I think this too is a danger for us, right? As we long for Jesus to return, to forget why we do what we do as the church, it's easy for this thing we do to become stale or lifeless or meaningless. And this is where the people of God were at the time of Malachi. So his word to them was a word of assurance in a lot of way, ways. And it is to us too. He says this in verse 16. Those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. And the Lord paid attention and heard them. It's so easy to miss that. It says that he paid attention to them and heard them, those who feared him. I I love this idea because it's so easy when we are in those times of of waiting, of of frustration. um, It can feel like God doesn't pay attention to us, right? It feels like he doesn't hear us. Sometimes it feels like no one hears us, can empathize with what we're going through. Sometimes it seems like People try and explain away our waiting, right? Tell us how much we're going to learn from it, treating it like I mentioned earlier, like an object lesson, rather than it being the literal journey that we are on. That's our life, right? But not our God. The God we're in relationship with pays attention to us, where we are. He hears us. Don't miss that. And the verse goes on and it says, a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. So um, fearing the Lord in the Old Testament has a nuance of giving proper honor and and reverence to God um, due to his power and glory. And the book of reverence is is referenced kind of throughout scripture. It's called a couple of different things. But it's a place where God, um, both literally and figuratively, um, writes and records all of the people that profess faith in him, his chosen people. But hear these words next. Hear the grace in them. Verse 17 says, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. And the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve them. He says, They shall be mine. My treasured possession. This, in our waiting, is our assurance. 
That no matter where we are, what we are doing, no matter how silent God seems, how distant, how far away he seems, he looks at me and he looks at you and he says, you are my treasured possession. We are not alone. Christ claims us as his own. So in all of this, the resounding question remains, right? Why do we wait? Why is it inherent to who we are? Why does it have to be this way? I think there's a few answers to this. The first is that we're finite, right? By nature of our humanity, we're limited. We're, we are a limited people. We wait because we are not infinite. We're not God, and so we wait because if we were all-powerful, we wouldn't have to wait. Our timing would be perfect. It's our finitude that reminds us why we wait. It's a reminder to us that God is infinite, that he is all-powerful, that he never has to wait on anything, ever. His timing is perfect because of that. He wills and acts according to the perfect time every single time because he waits on nothing. Waiting is limiting and God is limitless. But we also wait uh, because, of our, because of sin. Though the consequences of our own sin can cause us to wait, our own sinfulness makes us wait at times for a myriad of reasons. Typically, it's the fallenness of the world that causes our waiting. Sickness, loss, brokenness. Not the way it was ever intended to be. The waiting that results from that. So by way of application, I've got a, a challenge and a comfort for us as we wait. Let's start with a challenge. It's this. God's claim over us challenges our sense of autonomy and in doing so changes our desire while we wait. I think one of the biggest reasons we struggle with waiting so much is that we have this skewed sense of autonomy. The rampant individualism of our culture has conditioned us so much to think that we should get what we want whenever we want it. But it's verses like this that remind us of something different. That what we want is not our goal. What we need is actually not even our goal. That's because we are not our own. Our desires are not our own. We are Christ's. He could end our waiting at any time. But in his timing, he chooses not to. And this is why 1 Corinthians 6 says that, literally says that, we are not our own. Because we were bought with a price. Ephesians 6 says uh, that we serve Christ literally as his slaves. It's doulos in Greek. 1 Peter 2 says that the point of our freedom, that we do have agency, is to return as bondservants to Christ. And this is a hard truth for us. Even just saying that, I know, makes us all bristle a little bit on the inside. But if we were given complete control, like we think that we have, it would end really badly for us. It would be like giving the ability to be God without the power to be God. We would be crushed under that weight. No, he is in control. It's only by grace that we wait and that we are his and he is ours. Because we would not be able to handle it like we think we could. Now, hear this. We do have agency. We're not uh, automatons and robots. 
Because we are not our own, but Christ, it doesn't mean that we don't have agency even in our waiting. We do. It doesn't mean that we don't question it because he isn't scared of our questions. It doesn't mean that it's not painful and hurtful because waiting can be deeply painful. It doesn't mean that it shouldn't, uh, it shouldn't be that way because it is. It's the way that life is. All it means is that Christ, in his power and in his glory, could end our waiting but doesn't according to his, his own perfection, his own will, and his own plan. And he is still good. The more we give up this sense of autonomy while we wait, relinquish it to the control of him, the more he will sustain us in it. So we wait. We'll continue to long suffer in our waiting with the full knowledge that the God of the universe sees us, loves us, accepts us, pays attention to us because we are his treasured possession. Okay, now the comfort. Here's the comfort of this verse. The comfort is this. It's okay to struggle with it. To cry out to God. To be frustrated with the season you're in. Because you are God. Because he claims you. He claims all of you. He hates the pain that you feel. He hates the sin that wreaks havoc on us and on this wonderful world that he created. Especially those of you that are in seasons of waiting and in long-suffering and in hardship that is not of your own doing, Christ's heart breaks for you. He hates it because he loves you. So if you're at that place where it's become too much to bear, where you're feeling like you're being crushed, or you're just sick of it, know that he sees that too. And he loves you. And the waiting will end one day. And when it does, whether it's in this life or the next, it'll be the perfect time. Because Christ, who is our perfection, doesn't make mistakes. Ever. So struggle with it. It's funny that the struggle is the comfort, but it is. Because you're not alone in it. Struggle well. Be comforted knowing that the God of the universe is with you. Hating all that sin breaks in you. This brings us to our second point. So, no matter how long our waiting, Christ is at work on our behalf. And so we saw that we must wait with the assurance of his claim. And the second, we're going to see we must wait with the hopes of restoration. So when the weight of the world is, is bearing down on us, we feel the pain of waiting for whatever it is, healing, relationships, work, anxiety, or depression, the only way we're going to be able to get through it is hope. That's it. It's only through hope. Because if there is no hope, how could we possibly endure and these next three verses are all about restoration. It says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, said the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Malachi is saying that the restoration that comes from God himself will destroy all that is evil in the world. All that sin plagues his good creation, our home will be destroyed. It will be wiped away. New life can start again in a root or in a branch. But when it's reduced to nothing, to stubble, nothing can grow again. And that is exactly what Christ will do when he comes again to destroy all that sin has wreaked havoc on. God will destroy and make new. Even the harsh words of this are hopeful. Verse 2 says, But for you who fear my name, 
the son of righteousness shall rise with healings in his wings and you shall go out leaping like calves in the stall. But you who fear my name, my treasured possession, who I claim as my own, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings and his healing powers will make you free so that it's like when the calf finally gets let out of its stall and it can run around the yard. That exuberance of freedom is the healing we experience through the coming Messiah. This is a direct image of Jesus Christ shining with light, rising and bringing the healing that we are so desperate for in our waiting. That creation is longing for and groaning for. This is our hope. Those of you who are desperately waiting for Friday to come so you can pay off your bills or just go to the grocery store and get food for your family. Those of you who feel like you're at a dead end in your marriage or your relationship, desperately waiting for your spouse to change, to move towards you. Those of you who are waiting every day for the chains of depression and anxiety to fall off of you so that you can finally go to work or school without feeling like you're lifting a thousand pounds. It's the picture of the son of righteousness rising with healing in his wings and his kind eyes smiling down on you. That is your hope. So again, it begs another question for us. If our God is restorative, if there really is healing in his wings, why does he not end it now? Those of us who are in seasons of waiting, uh, which I hope we've come to this place to understand that all of us are on some level, right? Why doesn't he end it? He has the power and he has the ability. Why doesn't he return tomorrow and set all things new? Why didn't he do it when the crusades were happening and atrocities were happening in his name? Why didn't he come back when the Holocaust was happening? Why not during hundreds of years in this country when slavery was the backbone of the economy? Why do we wait for his return? I hate to say this. And the answer is we don't know. Not to cop out there. (laughs) Uh, But we do know two things. This is what we do know, and this is what's promised us in this passage and throughout all the scripture, is that God is at the work of restoration right now, and he will be at the work of restoration one day. So we have a God who is restoring and will restore. I want us to have two application points with that knowledge of his current and future restoration. The first is to choose hope. And the second is to embrace the light. Choosing hope in the midst of waiting doesn't mean we ignore the pain of waiting, but we recognize it and then choose to hope. It doesn't mean we move towards acceptance that it may never change, but rather we live every day expecting for it to change one day, whether in this life or when he returns. It doesn't mean that it's easy, but rather we choose hope because the alternative is despair and we know that Christ is still at work. We choose hope because we have a God who promises restoration to reduce all that is evil in the world to stubble. That's where our hope is. And the second is accept the light. Christ throughout scripture is referenced as light. And the imagery of Christ as the son of righteousness is hopeful for us this morning. Actually, uh, we sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing every year at Christmas. We'll sing it next week probably. Um, 
It mentions the son of righteousness in there, applying it directly to Christ. He is our light in our waiting, in our despondency, in our anxiety. He is our hope, spreading his healing wings around us. It's him that we find the restoration that we are looking for. Uh, I'm going to read this quote from Beekner um, that's going to be up there to end this point. But remember, in your waiting, choose hope. Embrace the light, the healing of Christ. Beekner puts it this way. I think we are waiting. That is what is at the heart of it. Even when we don't know what that we are waiting, we, I think we are waiting. Even when we can't find words for what we are waiting for, I think we are waiting. An ancient Advent prayer supplies us with the words, Give us grace, it says, that we may cast off the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light. We who live much of the time in the darkness are waiting, not just at Advent, but at all times for the advent of light, of that ultimate light that is redemptive and terrifying at the same time. It is redemptive because it puts an end to darkness. But that's also why it's terrifying. Because for so long, for all of our lives, the darkness has been home. And because to leave home is always cause for terror. But Jesus is saying, come back home to me. Embrace my light. And we're going to come to our final point, And I'm just going to briefly mention it. Because I took all of our time earlier celebrating our new members. Um, it says, remember the laws of my servant Moses, the statues and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. One commentator says, this is all of the Pentateuch in one verse. Uh, that by bringing up the law in Moses, he's calling them to remember all that God did for them. To remember that he brought them out of slavery, out of Egypt. And it's so easy in our waiting to not think that we have a God who wants to rescue us, that wants to save us, and we forget it. And he's saying, remember how God has worked throughout all of history. He's a God who saves. He is a faithful God to us. We need to remember his faithfulness in our waiting. It's so easy to forget it, to lose sight of it, but he's faithful. And I'm going to end this point, but I want you to hear this. If you ever wonder if God is faithful or not, and you ever need the reminder, look at Jesus. Jesus who came knowing what it would cost him. Have have you ever considered that Jesus' time here on earth was a time of waiting in his humanity? Often his earthly ministry is referred to as his humiliation. You know why? It's because he became one of his very creations. He was fully God, yes, but he was fully man. He lowered himself to become one of us so that he could save us. He lowered himself so that we could be elevated. Think about this. He waited 33 years. 33 full human years that he felt in his humanity. Every year of them. Every minute, every month, every second. So that he could die for us. He waited all that time just so that he could suffer the greatest agony that anyone in the history of mankind has ever suffered so that we could be saved, so that he could claim us as his own. And you're waiting. If you're wondering if God is faithful to you, know what Jesus waited on your behalf. He waited for you and for me so that we could be saved.
Never lose sight of that. Remember that faithfulness. Um, y'all definitely know this, but I'm just going to say it. There's probably something wrong with me. Um, but I often think what would happen, uh, and this is why there's something wrong with me, um, if the kids didn't eat the marshmallow and the person never came back into the room, right? Um, that would be like literal torture, right? Like they'd be sitting there tortured, waiting for someone to come in and give them their second marshmallow and never getting it. Um, and what's the low-hanging fruit of this story, right? Christ's coming was the giving of the first marshmallow, and we're waiting for God to re-enter the room and bring the second marshmallow. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to make the return of Jesus sound trite, because it's not. But I do think there's a bit of truth here. We are all waiting for Jesus to return. And we've experienced the first fruits of creation when he came. And through the Holy Spirit, we get to experience such goodness with him right now. But we long for him to return. We long for this period of waiting to be over. Because when he returns, the waiting of sickness, of anxiety, um, of all that is broken in us and in the world will be over. And we're waiting for that day to come. And we're sitting here, how long, O oh Lord? But my encouragement is this. Wait, but wait well. Struggle, but struggle well. Know that Christ is who he says he is. He's the God who became man, who claims us as his treasured possessions, who is at work right now restoring all that is broken and is faithful to us, even to the point of death on a cross. So that one day he could dwell with us again. Wait for that day. Wait well with the full knowledge and hope that he will come. And all of us say, so come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.